We have a flood of information available today that we've never had before. But what is that flood of information doing to our brains, to our culture, to our ability to have civil conversations about hard issues? We'll answer these questions and more with our guest today, journalist Bonnie Christian. I'm your host, Scott Ray. And I'm your co-host, Sean McDowell. And this is Think Biblically, a podcast from Tablet School of Theology here at Biola University. Bonnie, welcome. So delighted to have you with us. We commend your book, Untrustworthy. Uh, the knowledge crisis is breaking our brains, brains, polluting our politics, and corrupting our Christian community. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you maintain in the United States that we have a knowledge crisis. What exactly do you mean by that, and what evidence do you have for such a crisis? Sure, yeah. So the idea of the knowledge crisis is, I think, something that <clears throat> feels very familiar to a lot of us, um, to the point that even if we might have a, a little bit of a difficulty articulating exactly what it is, I, I haven't had anyone, when I've said that phrase, say, oh, no, I don't I don't experience that. I don't know what you're talking right. about. Um, it's that sense, I think, of <clears throat> confusion and uncertainty in this very chaotic and often overwhelming information environment we have, where you frequently find yourself um, often, not necessarily, but often online and often and again, not necessarily, but often in political contexts, looking at something and saying, you know, I, I just I, I don't know if this is true. I don't know how I would figure out if this is true. Um, there are competing claims here. I don't know how to adjudicate them. Um, and it has a relational dimension as well, I think, where we're, we find ourselves in conversations with friends, family, loved ones where it seems like it's not just we disagree about policy, you know, we've always had those kinds of disagreements, but where it seems like we're, we're talking past each other, we're not even looking at the same reality, um, where they're so convinced that the world is so different from the way you perceive it to be, and that frequently goes back to differences in media consumption. Um, mm. And so that, I think, is sort of the gist of it and something that is unfortunately um, really familiar to a lot of us. And so as far as evidence, I would say... Uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of polling that sort of gestures in this direction where we look at loss of loss of trust. And, and I would also point to things like loneliness and alienation from one another, um, increased political polarization and tribalism, um, generational strife, uh, even the, the rise of, of conspiracist thinking and the way that that pops up uh, often in, in congregational settings as well as uh, elsewhere, out, out sort of just in, in politics in general. Um, so there's not sort of like a, a single, I guess, one one thing that I could point to and say, like, look, that's that's the proof. But I think that we, most of us have experienced at least bits and pieces of this in our lives and in the lives of, of people we know and, and in our engagement with politics and with the press. I totally agree. I don't know anybody from the left to the right, conservative to liberal, who's going to say, nah, we don't have a knowledge crisis today. I think it's obvious, but you say it's breaking our brains. Tell us what you mean by that. Yeah, so that, that phrase is, um, to some degree, it, it is intended to mean our, our literal brains, where in, in the sense mm. of you know, the way that we spend our time and our, our patterns of thought and attention and activity um, our, our brains, you know, as, as we know, really, really do sort of like set pathways that it becomes quite physically hard to break out of them. Um, of course, it also means our minds as well. And, and just the way that our thinking becomes corrupt. And I think if you get really deep into a state of knowledge crisis, you, you have trouble maintaining sort of a feel for truth. You have trouble 
um, noticing deception and manipulation, especially if it's coming from people with whom you agree or to whom you're generally sympathetic. Um, and so it's just sort of a, a corrupting effect on how we think that may begin just with our politics, but I think it it's rarely going to be confined to that alone. So Bonnie, say it, just say a little bit more about how our mainstream news media contributes to the knowledge crisis. And then I'm, I'm curious to know how you think social media contributes to that too. Yeah, well, so let me, starting with the, the mainstream media, um, we have, the, the answer that most people will give you on this, and, and I, I say most people because we have polling on this, that overwhelmingly what Americans think is wrong with the mainstream media when they see, you know, mistaken stories or, or just have a, a general sense of discontent with it, people will tell you that they think that journalists are lying on purpose for ideological reasons. Um, in, in the most common variant, it's basically to help Democrats get elected. And I would argue that that is not a very good diagnosis of what's wrong with the media. And that's not to say that, that there's nothing wrong with the media, but it's to say that I, I don't think it's generally that. Of course, you can always find, um, you know, examples of, of, of malfeasance if you look for them. But in the bigger scale, I would point to more mundane things that have a lot to do with media figuring out basically how do we make money um, hmm. in the digital age where the advertising market is just not what it used to be. Um, now, you know, we don't do our classifieds in the newspaper. We do Craigslist. We do Facebook Marketplace. You don't post jobs, cars, homes. All, all of that used to be a advertising for all of that used to be a huge moneymaker. And it's just not like that anymore. And at the same time, subscriptions, which were the other big income source, that's gone down in many cases as well because we have this idea that content on the Internet should be free to us, sort of like by right. Um, and so that business pressure has, you know, the media doesn't always react to it in the best way. It's still an open question of, of how do we figure this out? Um, and so in a lot of cases, the, the reaction that you see is a tend, tendency to um, move toward sort of an entertainment model, um, move toward maybe even some sensationalizing, um, to be putting out too much content too quickly because there's this desperation to try to get audience so that we can pay the bills. Um, because, you know, the, the media is a business. We do have to pay the bills. Mm. Um, so I think that's a big part of the problem, like mm. that, that incentive to put out low-quality, high-quantity content um, that creates some some very bad incentives and, and, mm. and some bad results. I think also the media is in a point of transition around um, questions of, on the, the reporting side of things, questions around objectivity and how we handle truth claims, um, matters of, of morality. Should you try to sort of hew to that older standard of taking a neutral stance or should you, you know, in, in, in your view, call a spade a spade? Um, and that's a debate that's happening in public because of everything happens in public now. Um, and so the, the public watches it and sees sort of an industry that's in a point of transition and, and really messy um, at this time. Social media, I think, exacerbates a lot of those trends. Um, and this is where a lot of us as news consumers tend to be um, implicated, I think, in making things worse. Um, you know, every time we're posting and sharing some garbage piece of news content on our mm. social media feeds we're encouraging exactly the the bad behavior from the press that we say we don't want um, every time you click 
that is sending a tiny signal saying do more of this. But in reality, you know, for the most part, we want them to do less of that, right? Um, And social media, I think, is, you know, it's not without value. I'm not, I have some social media accounts. It's, It's not like I'm saying there's nothing good there. But the way it is designed to take so much of our time and our attention um, the way it is designed to get us emotionally riled um, because that's what gets people to stay to stay longer and, and helps th- these companies you know make money that's not good for us is not and, and it's very difficult to resist that especially if you're not sort of aware of it and aware of how it works um, and it also I think just places all of our content consumption in a very chaotic and tribalistic context where you're not just sitting down to read the newspaper at the dining room table. You're reading it, you know, with a bunch of people cheering or jeering. Um, and you're also getting jerked from one emotion to another. So you, you read that serious newspaper story and then you see a picture of a cat and then you hear about a genocide and then it's a baby photo. And it's just like, I don't know how you can have a coherent, (laughs) how you can think about things coherently in that context and make, you know, sober and and, and prudent judgments in in those situations. I think it's really helpful that you're bringing to the surface just the, the format and medium itself now of news and social media really does encourage certain behavior that conflicts, let's say, minimally with reporting the truth. Uh, So, you know, if it bleeds, it reads is now on steroids to shock and awe uh, to get clicks and views and ultimately money. So I appreciate that you're pushing us deeper to be aware of how the system itself uh, pushes towards this. Now, one of the implications of the crisis you talk about is cancel culture and the public shaming that goes along with that. We've discussed this here a few times Uh, Scott and I have, but what's your take on this? Are there certain opinions that ought to be shamed, such as Holocaust denial, for example? Yes, there's never been a society that doesn't have out-of-bounds opinions, right? And something should be out-of-bounds, I think. Um, What's unique about what's going on right now, and, and the phrase cancel culture has become so controversial that it's hard to say if that's even worthwhile, but that is generally what I'm talking about. Um, What's happening with, with cancel culture is a, a few specific things. One is we're not talking about the sort of like the judgment of the local community or, or within the village. Um, it's, a, it's a mass online phenomenon. And so a lot of the people who are engaged in the shaming are people who were never directly harmed by the initial action at all. Right. So it's not like you have some actual grievance. It's not like what this person did affected you in some concrete way. It's just you decided to sort of get in on the mob. Um, and that, I think, is, is very different. Um, and, and it allows retribution on a scale that didn't happen before. And with and, you know, so many uninvolved people who, who just, you know, it's really none of their business. Um, another thing I think that is, is really distinct is it's not, again, it's not, bad that there are ideas that, that the community decides are out of bounds. What's different is that the boundaries move much more quickly now. And so you have people, and, and again, this is something else that we have polling on, people are quite worried that they're going to get in trouble for saying something unacceptable that they didn't even know was unacceptable because it, it, it changes so quickly. 
And so, you know, it's, it's not cancel culture when you do a murder and you get convicted of it and you suffer the appropriate legal consequences. Like that is a concrete harm with a concrete victim. And it's, it's something that we have long prohibited and all agreed that murder is wrong. Um, cancel culture tends to be much more about um, it's not criminal activities. It's things that may not have even been um, considered shameworthy relatively recently. Mm. It involves people who weren't directly harmed. And also where I think it get, often gets really disproportionate because it happens online, the record is permanent. And so even if you were to say, well, I think this degree of shame was appropriate for this offense, is it appropriate then that that person maybe five years down the line 10 years down the line, every time a new potential employer looks up their name, this record of their single worst moment online is what they find. Mm. Um, I think it's, it's pretty much never the case that, that that long, long trail of punishment from strangers is going to be appropriate. Um, but that is how it works. Now, Bonnie, let's look at the, the other side of that coin. Um, sort of the opposite of cancel culture, which you, you describe by the term the Overton window. Uh, tell us a little bit, what do, you, what do you mean by that, and how, how does that function today? Yeah, so the Overton window um, is an idea from political science, and it basically says that we always have a range of ideas in a given societies that, that we think are legitimate and reasonable, and like we would, these are the sorts of things where we would say, like, you know, I think that's wrong, but this is something on which reasonable people can disagree. Uh, and so, you know, the Overton window changes over time, and that's fine. Um, the, the problem is, and this is where we're getting to that issue of boundaries for, for debate and what's considered shameworthy and what's not, the problem is when the Overton window changes too rapidly, I think. Um, and, and not only that it changes so rapidly, but it, that it changes really mercilessly such that people become afraid to engage in debate and to research and to say what they think is true or to ask questions because they're worried that they will step outside the window unawares and then suffer disproportionate and longstanding consequences. Towards the beginning of the interview, you mentioned the idea of kind of increasing conspiracy theories today, such as QAnon. Of course, we've always had co certain kinds of theories like this, mostly dismissed as nonsense. But you say these current conspiracy notions are different. Uh, in what way? Apologies. Um, yeah, so I think what's, what's different is not so much the content of any distinct conspiracy theory um, like QAnon. QAnon is actually in many ways sort of a patchwork of, of very long-standing conspiracy theories that have been around forever, just slightly updated and repackaged. Um, huh. So it's not particularly novel. What's different is uh, what a, a pair of political scientists whom I quote call conspiracism. And so it's not about any discrete theory. Um, it's really much more of a, a mindset where you know, it's sort of a, a habit of, of distrust, um, you know, not without any particular basis. It's very accusatory. It's very credulous, ironically, depending on who is speaking. Um, and it treats, you know, it doesn't require research. Rumor is good enough. It doesn't require proof. Innuendo is enough if the person who's being accused is someone whom you already dislike. And so, 
you will frequently hear people who get into QAnon say things like do your own research, but they don't really mean research. They mean like watching a YouTube video. And we're not talking about like digging up classified documents and building this meticulous case to demonstrate that a conspiracy happened because sometimes conspiracies do happen. We're talking about just making allegations. And even if none of the evidence pans out, you just come up with some new allegations and keep on going because it's really not about the details. It's about you've already decided that these people are bad. Um, and this, this sort of the accusation has its own momentum um, and it doesn't really require any of what we think of as like sort of the the stereotypical X Files conspiracy style conspiracy theorizing, where you're, you're trying to drum up that proof and make your case. This is much more of a, a broad mindset that doesn't need details, um, because details aren't really the point. The accusation itself is the point. Bonnie, Bonnie one of the uh, evidences you cite for the knowledge crisis that we have today is our increasing and widespread distrust of experts. And so tell us a little bit, how, how do we get to this place where, you know, uh, being labeled an expert is almost pre- a pejorative term now in some, in some people's eyes. And we just have, a, especially post-COVID, we have such a widespread distrust of experts. How, how do we get to this place? It's a, it's a tricky time to talk about, uh, <laughs> to say positive things about expertise, I think. Um, as you say, especially after the pandemic, because so many experts really did not cover themselves with glory during the pandemic, in, in some cases openly admitting that they had told noble lies to the public, you know, lies <laughs> that they thought were for the public's own good. And then just coming out and, and flat out saying it and expected, expecting to still be trusted moving forward. Um, the difficulty is that we, we live in a very complex society. Um, we have to rely on expertise and we all do it every single day. You know, you hire a plumber, you drive across a bridge, you go to the doctor, you are relying on expertise and it's expertise that in the vast majority of cases, you have no way to evaluate, right? Like I, I can't look at a bridge and see, say, is, is that bridge good? Um, I just have to drive across it and, and trust that the bridge is not going to fall. And occasionally bridges do fall. Right. But generally speaking, they don't. Um, and that is how we are able to live in a, in such a, a complex and wealthy and, and comfortable society that we have. So we can't not, we can't do without expertise. We can't not trust experts to a great degree. Um, but at the same time, particularly again, in light of recent events, experts do need to, to take care to make their expertise trustworthy and so a lot of what we've seen in, in recent years that has made it hard to trust expertise is things like um, expert hypocrisy, you know, doing things that they told the rest of us not to do. Um, things like, again, the noble lies, things like experts <clears throat> who have legitimate expertise in one field and then deciding they're going to pontificate in another field where they don't have any expertise, but, but they still want to sort of just be generally regarded as experts. Um, and especially experts being unwilling to admit and apologize when they get things wrong. And all of those kinds of behaviors are really poisonous to public trust. But the flip side of that is that the public, <laughs> experts getting things wrong does not mean that the, the unexpert public uh, is correct, right? So the fact that <clears throat> a scientist made a mistake does not mean that what I Googled is right. Um, 
it doesn't mean that my YouTube watching habits count as real research. And so at the same time as experts need to um, really take care to not be, you know, treating people as, as like, treating adults like children and who can't be trusted with the, with the hard truths, um, you know, we as adults need to be giving experts grace to self-correct and to, to make improvements and to move on from mistakes. Um, and so I think on both sides and, and not holding, holding up our own ignorance as equal to an expert's like real expertise. Um, and so I think on both sides, there are changes that need to be made (laughs) to make the, the public expert relationship more functional and workable because it it is a relationship that I think we need. Hmm. Now, when it comes to news and social media and the range of ways we get information today, they're appealing not only to our minds, but also to our emotions. How do you think we can connect our emotions and our rationality in light of just all the information that's coming at us nonstop? Should we just follow our hearts or should we be like Spock and siphon our hearts and just purely follow our minds? <laughs> I think you, you get a lot of messages in, in, at both of those extremes. Um, my own background as a, as a kid in evangelical churches was very distrustful of emotions. Um, and I think, especially if that's your your background, it's easy to see what's wrong with the just follow your heart approach, right? Like we do need to think rationally. We do need to consider evidence. We do need to uh, approach things in a way that is that is studious and careful. Um, and and so simply going with the whims of your emotion is is clearly not good. And so it can be tempting, you know, if that seems obvious to you, to say like, all right, well maybe you know we'll try to do just that, just be rational and not, not engage with our emotions. The problem is that I, I, it's, I think it's naive and mistaken to believe that we can just cut ourselves off from our emotions like that. And what happens is when we, when we think that we are so rational, um, the emotions are there. We're just not aware of them and not handling them well. Uh, and to the point that sometimes we, we treat emotions as if they're, you know, more, more sinful, as if that part of us is more fallen than our rational mind. And that's, that's not true. There's, there's no scriptural warrant for that. Um, and so what I would argue is that, you know, emotion is a very important part of persuasion. You, very rarely are you going to persuade someone just by making a, a, a just a pure logical evidence-based case for them. Emotion is huge. It's why journalists will love to start articles with a little anecdote because that emotional connection prepares you, prepares Mm. the mind to receive the evidence. And so I think if we care about truth, if we care about persuading people of truthful things, we should be looking to, to have emotion and reason working in harmony, not against each other and not isolated from one another, but so that emotional emotion can, um, prepare us essentially to, to, hear, uh, to hear reason and to, to, um, be accepting of truths that we might have resisted if we were only presented with that very logical case. You know, Bonnie, one of the other bits of evidence you cite for a knowledge crisis is what you refer to as identity deference in the culture at large. What, what do you mean by that? And what makes that such a dangerous thing? 
so that's a, a phrase from a, a guy named uh, Matt Brunig, and <clears throat> he himself is a, a socialist. He's very much like on the left, which I mentioned because um, this concept that he he named is primarily, not exclusively, but primarily a problem that you see on the left. And so he was sort of like critiquing it from within his own tribe and presents a very clear-eyed account of identitarian deference as a problem. And so essentially what it is, is the idea that certain people with certain identities and, and often, often this expen- extends to certain experiences. You'll hear people say like, in my lived experience, that's a, a frequently a telltale phrase, or they'll say, as a woman, or as a black person, or as an immigrant, whatever the, the relevant identity is, they'll start with that. If you can claim that identity or experience, then you not it's not just that you have a unique and important insight to contribute, that you have, or you have a relevant question to raise, or whatever the case may be, it's that you should receive deference when you speak on that issue, and that someone who doesn't have that identity or experience you know, sort of needs to automatically take the back seat and not challenge you and that, and even in some cases that you, you may have real trouble communicating across identities, that someone who has had a certain set of experiences because of who they are might not be able to communicate that to someone who hasn't had, doesn't have that same background and the other person just needs to accept it. Um, and there's a whole lot of reasons why this doesn't make sense, um, which uh, Brunig details. One of the ones that really concerns me, though, is what that does to conversation and how it makes it, it's a conversation stopper, right? Because if you accept that, the terms of that um, for a conversation, then at a certain point you reach an impasse where the disagreement persists. No one has really persuaded anyone. They haven't reached some new synthesis of the two ideas it's it's more um it's a power play more than anything else it's it's not persuasion um and that i think we already have so many limits on how we how we talk to each other and so many fears about how we talk to each other and so much anger adding that rule does not help Bonnie, you diagnose the problem going on in our culture i think well but you also offer some habits that we can develop now, obviously, you can't go into the depth you do in the back of the book, some really practical habits of kind of building a plan to do this better. But what are some of the habits we need to develop to become more intellectually virtuous? Yeah, so I, I think a lot of people really are hoping for some sort of big top-down fix, like if, mm. if Elon Musk can just moderate Twitter better, <laughs> you know, it'll all be better. Um, I don't, not, not Elon Musk in particular, but anyone, I don't think anyone has sure. come up with a big top-down fix for that. And so that's where um, what, what we can affect is what kind of people we are coming into these environments, um, what kind of intellectual virtues we have. And, and that's where habits come in, because you can't just decide to be virtuous, right? But you can create a a space with your habits for those virtues to grow. Um, And so a lot of the virtues that I detail are are really, or excuse me, the habits that I suggest are really about use of time and where where we are putting our attention, um, what what voices are we hearing throughout the day. And, And so some of it is about news consumption, some of it is about how much time are you spending on social media? Some of it is about 
um, you know, is the television the center point of your home in your primary room where you spend your time? Uh, these kind of very practical things that as, as daunting as it feels to look at the, the entirety of our knowledge crisis and the, the sort of the, the whole mess of our media ecosystem, that's a huge thing that you can't fix. But you can make these smaller changes in, in what your life is like day to day. Um, and I think that for many of us, we, we tend to think of, you know, our, our social media use in particular, especially if you're old enough to have remembered time without social media, we think of it as sort of an add-on to our lives, something like a little bit recreational, something that we we just sort of do in the margins of our lives. But, you know, if you look at your phone screen time report, I'm guessing you'll find that uh, your phone has is not an add-on, um, that it is significantly just how you're spending your life now. And so it's very important, I think, that we are not out of control in, in the way, these ways that we're spending our attention. Um, even something as simple as, is your phone the first thing that you look at when you wake up in the morning? Um, is that how you are starting your day and, and beginning your interaction with the world? Um, so as you say, it's, I can't list them all, but there are a number of things and, and they're all, you know, pretty doable things. They're not things that cost a lot of money or that, um, you know, someone living a normal, hectic life with kids or, or jobs or, or whatever is unable to do. Well, once you start talking about our phone and that screen time indicator, <laughs> that's getting way too convicting. Oh, so, we, so, we, so we better stop for now. <laughs> but uh, Bonnie, we're out of time. Thank you so much. Uh, I so appreciate your book. I want to commend it to our listeners titled Untrustworthy, subtitled The Knowledge Crisis That Breaking Our Brains, Polluting Our Politics, and Corrupting Christian Community by our guest, Bonnie Christian. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for the insight in this. And uh, I pray for our listeners to develop some of the habits that you've talked about. Uh, and I think that, that probably involves breaking some habits that we have developed by default over the years that social media and iPhones and things like that have been with us. So this is great stuff. Uh, I, hope our, I hope our listeners get a chance to get your book and to go carefully through it. Thank you so much. Great to have you with us. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, offering programs in Southern California and online, including our Masters in Christian Apologetics, now offered fully online. Visit biola.edu slash Talbot in order to learn more. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please give us a rating on your podcast app and do share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything. Everything.